Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. Uh, this is a live radio show and podcast. It is a solutions-oriented podcast, and so we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So today, I'm um, excited and looking forward to my conversation um, with the noted um, psychologist and author, professor, of psychology, and, you know, it seems like lately I've had a number of uh, professors and researchers in the area of uh, psychology, positive psychology, well-being, and so forth, and today um, we have the the great uh, distinction and honor to have with us um, the same in terms of psychology, um, Dr. Todd Cashton. Uh, Welcome, Todd. It's so good to be here, Brian. Well, glad to have you. And as I was saying before we went live, you know, there's so many things I have that I want to jump right in and talk to you about. You know, uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with Todd's work, uh, he's a professor of psychology at George Mason University and um, has a, a brilliant publishing record, uh, has awards to his name um, at George Mason such as a Distinguished Faculty Member of the Year and a Distinguished Scientific Award um, uh, for his early career contributions. And so they just go on and on. Uh, Todd has uh, published in a number of, of, you know, kind of mainstream um, magazines and and certainly some other areas. Uh, And so his work is well-known and and so I want to start, you know, it, it just seems that we have a number of, of psychologists out there today that are doing some awesome work, just like you, Todd, that um, are really trying to help people um, in the mainstream, so to speak, you know, practical advice on how to be successful uh, in leadership, in working, uh, in, in organizations, and just kind of to make people better uh, citizens all around in their lives. And so thank you for the work that you do and the advice you've given uh, so many. So why don't we start, though? I know you, you have been doing work in well-being. Um, you, you know, one, one thing in your bio uh, that it talked about that I'm curious about, I'm sure other people may be curious, too, to know a little bit about what you refer to as mental flexibility and psychological flexibility. So why don't we start with, tell me a little bit about yourself, but uh, particularly as you close that out about yourself, um, get into what you mean by um, you're an expert on mental flexibility and psychological flexibility. Well, thanks for that introduction. I mean, basically studying psychological flexibility is a response that if we want to make progress towards our goals, have better friendships, increase our capacity to love, be more creative, we're going to get greater gains from being able to be responsive to what each situation requires as opposed to positivity. Kindness, Mm -hmm. 
compassion, empathy can only take you so far. You have to be able yeah. to be very sensitive to the situations and then figure out, okay, in this situation, this large matrix of personality traits that I have, openness to experience, mm. um, being a good storyteller, being yeah. calm under pressure, which one of these dimensions is going to be most effective to get the best possible outcome? And what that means is not just that you get the most rewards, but the other person doesn't walk away feeling as if they've been conned or they've been mistreated uh, in the situation. Sure, sure. And so, you know, a great example is if you, you read the, the history of Teddy Roosevelt, my favorite president who I wrote a chapter about. And Teddy Roosevelt had this moment in 1901 where he was deciding to be, the, what, to be the first sitting president to invite the first African-American to the dinner table. And mm. when he was in the situation, he, in, his, in his autobiography, his journal notes, he talks about, I was so nervous about inviting a black man into the White House because I had Southern relatives, and I know they would disown me. And I was going up for re-election, and I know I would lose votes from the South. And I was thinking about um, the financial coffers, that people would not donate money to my campaign if this was the thing I was going to focus on. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote this. Because I felt so fearful of having Booker T. Washington come eat dinner with me, and this guy was such a distinguished man who was basically creating new ideas about education, working mm -hmm. with children, I knew my fear was the indicator. This is the only way I can go is invite this guy. Because uh, why, should I, why should the word, world fear a creative, intelligent person coming to the household? And there's something about this as – this gets to psychological flexibility – Psychological flexibility is the ability to pursue what you care most about despite the presence of pain. Now, this isn't okay. a perfect rule, but if you yes. think about Teddy Roosevelt on your shoulder, there's something to be said of the thing you fear the most because you're worried what other people think is often exactly what you should be doing. It's not, mm -hmm. a, it's not a surefire rule, but it usually mm -hmm. means that you are pushing the world, you're pushing your field, you're pushing your life to a little bit more growth, a little bit more openness, and a little bit yeah. more expansiveness, which is the world always needs a little bit more innovation. Yes, and it sounds like it's, it's really a, an expansion on the, the, you know, kind of commonly held belief that, you know, no pain, no gain, right? So it, that you're stretching yourself. The reason it's uncomfortable um, it's because it's a stretch, and that's not a bad thing for you. It's, um, it, it can be certainly a good thing for you. Thank you. Thank you for, for explaining that. Um, you know, another thing that I um, have been really curious about, um, you know, we, the reason I asked you to come on was I know you have a new book, um, The Art of Insubordination, and what, I, what really captured me first before – um, I read anything about you, the work you were doing, or any of you know watched any of the presentations you've done on YouTube or any of your other articles was the description of the new book, and actually it's one you gave it is that you said that the book is for anyone who wants to see more justice, creativity, and innovation in the world. So I thought about that when in just the idea of the art of insubordination. I've had a couple of people say the art of insubordination, and I said, yeah, I get it, though. I, I certainly understand because there have been times when 
um, you're faced with a challenge. And I always think about it where I've been in situations where I've had to manage up in an organization or um, sometimes I'm faced with a dilemma and and it it comes to me that, you know, in this situation, I have to act and do the right thing. And I'll just ask for forgiveness when it's over. You know, it, it didn't happen the way the rules say you're supposed to, you know, follow this procedure, get this signature. But it was the right thing to do. And um, and so uh, even though I knew it wasn't procedurally the right thing, ultimately it was the right thing. So I think about that as, you know, it's certainly not something that they teach you in the school, you know, in a, in a lot of places, you know, the schools we go to learn leadership, um, but but it's something we have to do. Um, so I, you know, I, I just, it struck me when you, when it was for people who want to see more justice, creative innovation. So why, did, why, tell me a little bit about why you thought that was the audience here. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're highlighting the art part because I don't want people to think they have to read 20 scientific articles a week and have this evidence to support the idea that authority figures might be wrong. I mean, here's, here might be a good place to start, which is, yeah. this is this is a book really not about insubordination and not about rebellion. This is about how do you create a more utopian society. So mm-hmm. when you think about a more utopian society, every one of us is going to have some, uh, some different things you want to improve. So for me, one of, one of the issues that made me want to go in this direction and see what does the science have to say was criminal justice reform. I grew up in a very tough neighborhood outside of New York City. I had a lot of friends end up spending time at Rikers Island um, and mm-hmm. other, other jails and prisons. And most of them were for low-grade drug offenses, and they were 18 years old or 20 years old or a fake driver's license. And you have to ask yourself, um, is the system designed for more for retribution and punishing them and saying, here's an immoral person that we cannot allow into our society, or can we think in a more utopian way is that, listen, all of these people who are, who are not, you know, we're not talking about murder and you're not talking about sexual assault. You're talking about low-grade crimes. They're coming back into society. And so how would you design a system knowing they're going to come back? What psychological mm-hmm. strengths do you want to foster? What, what, what ability to cooperate in group settings do you want to actually instill those skills when they are away from society? And how do you prevent them from mm-hmm. having a greater sense of belonging and fit with the criminal, criminal group versus the most virtuous, kind groups, cooperative groups that exist in society? And when you mm-hmm. get to thinking about all of the different ways where society has dysfunctional norms, you start to say to yourself, it starts with individual people who say, you know what, a judge, a jury, a lawyer, um, a bailiff who basically says, it's like, listen, this person deserves another chance. And I think about the long arc of 50 years of their lives. So we want it to be completely destroyed and demolished as a function of a single offense, or are they Mm -hmm. a redeemable person? Now, these are, just by asking the questions, you start to move in the direction of maybe we can start tweaking the system a little bit. It doesn't have to be a radical abolishment of the criminal justice system, but just kind of mm-hmm. just in the past few years, all of a sudden, marijuana went from being, you know, in the same category as heroin and cocaine to being 
in the same category as alcohol, and then you get to this interesting question. If society was to rebuild itself from scratch, which would be mm. illegal based on the science of what we know what it does to the brain? Should alcohol yeah. be illegal or should marijuana be illegal? And what we know mm. is, not going into, into the conversation, marijuana has a much weaker effect on the brain than long-term alcohol use. That's right. That's interesting. That's right. mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so um, what I hear you saying is that we, it, it gives us a, a impetus to, to think about the, um, the things that we're doing, but not just go along with the status quo. Like we've always, we've always done it this way. Um, and so we just continue. You know, it's one of the hardest things to do. You as a psychologist know how the brain works and that, you know, one of the first things that made an impact to me, on me um, in neuroscience was the fact that, you know, the brain is, is wired to survive. And so what it considers survival is whatever it did yesterday, right? <laughs> and it's like, I did that before, and that, that means that I can, that's what I should continue to try to do. And, um, and so it's hard for a lot of people to change that. Um, and so they want to go along. Um, but what, you know, in, at least in your book, what you're talking about is doing something different. The getting getting outside of what we normally do, um, but I I, I want to ask you you know what so when you start talking about how to be creative and innovative, why does that do you think um, take acts of of insubordination and why are there kind of rules against those things like what 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 would your your hypothesis be around why we we have to work so hard and a lot of times it's exhausting i've i've been in roles like that before where you work really hard to do the right thing and you have to fight people to actually do the right thing yeah i mean in a nutshell we already know the answer so justin Thibault published a paper a year ago that talks about why is conformity so beautiful why is it so beneficial that everyone is thinking similarly in the group that you're part of or that you want to be part of and it comes down to is metabolic energy our brains like you're saying in terms of survival we want to use as little energy as possible and save it for the possibility that we're going to be threatened or Mm -hmm. there's an opportunity to procreate and we Mm -hmm. want and and outside of conscious awareness we're constantly doing this We are engaging in behavior that is predictable to other people. So if you ask me a question about in terms of, you know, why why are we so such big defenders of the status quo, and I answer cotton candy and nacho cheese, I just (laughs) made it very unpredictable for the remainder of our conversation. And so I will respond in a way to you that's predictable so we have this ebb and flow because coordinated activity in a group is a group that can function well against warring tribes, against mm-hmm. starvation, and when you're trying to search for, you know, what herbs have medicinal properties and what don't. And even though so this 1.5 million year brain today is constantly taking a check, what's my body budget? How much energy do I have left in the tank? And the way to save energy and conserve energy 
is look at what the group is doing and saying, you know what, I'm just going to follow them and save my energy for something else. And mm-hmm. as leaders, just, just, just imagine if, one, if you or I were the captain of a firehouse. Right. Our goal is very simple. Quickly get into that fire truck, get to the scene of the, scene of the crime or emergency, make sure we save humans and animals, and make sure there's minimal property damage. So mm-hmm. we, want, we want fast coordination. We want low levels of damage. We want zero casualties. And when you have dissent, disagree, it makes everything a little bit more complicated. But what yes. science yes. says, and what I would argue is, is you need people in that group that says, you know what? Are we sure that there's not another entrance through, up through yeah. the panic room in the back yeah. of the house? Are we sure yeah. that if we go through the front door, how closely is it attached to the next apartment complex? If, we've, yeah. if we let it burn on the side of the house, are we going to have an, another entire building that's going to be set afire? You need the dissenting voice. You're more effective. You're more efficient. Juries, firehouses, teachers in classrooms – um, and you're talking about, you know, the C-suite and organization. Even though it's annoying as freaking hell, the dissenting yeah. view makes coordination more difficult, but creativity, innovation, and justice more yeah. possible. Well, wow, you, you hit it right on the head. Thank you for for saying that. I mean, so eloquently, but, you know, so uh, to the point, and, you know, I, I am the director of a um, master's degree program for individuals that are aspiring principals. And um, what I would say is different about it is that just what you said about the leaders and the people who are needed is that if, if I could put it in a nutshell, is that that's who we're trying to create is a yeah. trying to create a, a, a group of dissenters in that way. Um, one of my proudest moments recently, I had one of my students come up to me um, at graduation and tell me a story that fits right into what you just said, was that, um, that there were people that told her, um, you know, here's the way we do it. And, um, and so she just said, but I just knew there, there had to be another way to get this done. And it, it, just because we had done it that way, I didn't want to be stuck. Um, and that's, it is definitely a challenge, but what we're trying to do is show people how to make that happen. And so what, you know, I never really thought about them as dissenting voices, um, but that's what it is. And, but there's a difference. And I'd love to hear you talk about this. So there's a difference between people that are kind of just devil's advocates and people right. who are, are dissenters. Uh, tell, me, tell me your thoughts on, you know, kind of like the people that jump in and say they play the role of devil's advocate. I mean, this is, this is always pops up in conversation is there's actually no evidence that having someone take an alternative view just for the sake of an alternative view helps the group. The reason is, is that, that person plays the red queen role and we can discount them. It's, 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 it's almost like it's what happened in the NFL. The NFL made a rule where they have to, in their interview process for, for a, um, for, for someone to be the, the coach of a football team, you have to have at least one minority candidate that you interview. So mm-hmm. with this rule, 
it sounds great on paper, but what happened is it allowed people a get out of jail free card to say, we'll pick someone who's a minority, who's non-white, we'll interview them, even though we don't even care about them, and we have met the letter of the law that the NFL required, and now we can go for the people we're actually considering. And what the better approach would be in that situation, so that's the devil advocate role in a, di in a different form, which is that here we're going to have, we're going to have a dissent from your typical middle-aged white applicant, and we're going to force another person to be there, even though they're not genuinely qual qualified or they even want them there. It's easy to say we did what was, we, we did everything that was required for diversity, but we didn't actually have to do anything for it. What you want is, is to have, for example, blind admissions, where mm -hmm. you're basically evaluating all of the qualifications stripped of any identifying information, and then see who do you end up interviewing, who's at the cream of the crop. In that case, you're taking race, sex, gender, sexual orientation out of the equation, as opposed to making it the defining characteristic of an applicant for being an NFL coach. And the same thing happens in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And as you're describing as a principal, um, I had a female student in my class last semester, and she talked about this very simple blue-collar work example where she was working in a factory warehouse, and she was basically doing the booking, the accounting, and mm -hmm. she's a power lifter. And there was a rule in the warehouse that said only men can lift the crates in the back of the warehouse in the stock room. And the stock room made more money than the accountants. And so, she, so what she did after taking this class about the art of insubordination is went to her manager and said, listen, I can outlift deadlifting, squatting, or bench pressing at least 80% of the men in the stock room. Let me yeah. prove to you that I lifted. And, and he was just never challenged before. And he said, okay, let's, let's have a challenge. They had a weightlifting challenge in the back of the stock room. This, this woman in my class could basically deadlift 400 pounds oh all the boys yeah. and that one what i love about the story is it's not politics right we're not talking about abortion we're not talking about presidential elections we're talking about one single 18 year old student undergraduate student who changed an entire warehouse's rules about what women can do what men can do by simply asking the question why is yeah. this rule there who put it there what evidence do you need to show that it's antiquated right Right. And a lot of it is based on, in, 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 especially in this case, some bias and preconceived notion about who you must be to, to, to have that job. And that, we could apply that across the board in a lot of ways, you know, where people are, are seen uh, one way and they, they actually are qualified or otherwise. So, um, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, you know, I, I also had one, another theme that seemed to run through also with, with this topic, um, and we cover this in our, in our program too, is the, the advice you gave on intentionality. This was, a, this was actually not about um, insubordination, but I think – you know, it's worth mentioning, um, and you, you in your article, and there are. We're going to give those of you who may be listening in uh, live. We're going and 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 much later. Um, we're going to give some 
locations where you can find these articles. It's five five minute read. You you estimate it where um, where you are talking about. Um, the call for intentionality, and I think in a lot of the things that we do, and, it's, and this is not um, unusual, that we need intentionality in, and it's kind of a, a kind of w- awareness too for the, the the goals we have. And so it sounds like this um, idea of dissenting. Is is really requires you to have an intent and a purpose. Uh, am I understanding that right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, let's. So I don't know if I've said this publicly before, but let's talk about what I call the dissenter's paradox, which hmm. is dissenting from a group that is cohesive and has positivity. Like they get along, right? They hang out. They have happy hour. Meetings are raucous. You don't even need like an icebreaker. Everyone just like really gets along well. Dissenting in that type of group is horrible for the individual. It detracts from their well-being. Everyone looks at you. Why are you making the meeting longer? Why do you have to disagree? Everyone's on the same page. Like what's wrong with you, Todd? Like can't you just go along with everyone else? What's bad for the individual dissenter is incredibly beneficial for the group. So while the group doesn't feel good, while the group now feels uncertain and uncomfortable and disturbed and distressed and anxious and, and, and they feel a sense of tedium that you're speaking, the fact is the group now slows down and has to be more intentional in explaining, but why are we deciding to cut our workforce? Why are we deciding basically that we want to bring this other company and merge with them if we're doing this? Like what's the end game? Why do we want to make more money? Why do we want to be bigger? So we shouldn't just it – just, it's Brian, it's just what you said before. We have to really look into what are the unsaid assumptions that we have. Like why does every business have to get bigger and make more money? Maybe you could just be the best at what you do and be incredibly elegant and sleek and, like, and, and careful in terms of not having any extra fat or grizzle on the edges here. Yeah. And you have yeah. to basically – and the idea of defending – what your outcome is, what your desired desired five-year five year image of yourself and of the group is. The dissenter does that, and then people realize, I don't really know why. I just figured now that we're making $5 million a year, why shouldn't we be making $10 million a year? But the thing is, there's always a trade-off. And the question is, how many extra hours will each person week, will work? How many, how many extra birthdays and parties and recitals by your kids are you going to miss? And if we think about things in terms of creating a utopian society for each individual, we may mm-hmm. decide, you know what, we're doing pretty good monetarily. Now let's have greater balance between the multiple domains of our lives, of work, friends, family, and romance. Yeah, yeah. You know, one uh, part of what you were talking about at first made me think about a situation I was in once. I was on this national board where there were 27 members of a board, believe it or not, it's a huge board, and but it represented, um, you know, all 50 states and a couple of territories of the U.S. Um, and so um, we did this. We we I can't even remember what it was about, but we took a vote, and there were the and it, the vote ended up being 25 to two, 
and it was me and another colleague who um, had voted on the other side. And so the vote had been taken. It was just over. And and so understanding per, the process, you know, we went to lunch, and I talked to a few people and lobbied for us to go back and do a motion to reconsider and let's, you know, let, let's go back because I think we made a mistake. And I remember my colleague who had, who was the second person initially um, said, just let it go. You know, everybody else has voted against it. Just let it go. And it's like, no, like that's not okay. And then, you know, talk to a few people. So anyway, we ended up getting it back on the topic for discussion and as a, nice. as a, a reconsideration. And, and so, but after further discussion, turned it around and it ended up being 26 to 1. And the person who voted against, you know, like changing it was like, I was just so dead set that we already voted on this. We shouldn't, we shouldn't have changed it. So it wasn't, wasn't substantive difference. It was, right. just, we, I don't want to consider it. And afterwards, why are we, why, yeah, why are we re- relitigating? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. irrelevant. But then after it was over, I went to him, I said, you see, that's like, we have to be intentional about what we want to see happen. And I just remember that. And I, and so as you talked more about it, I know you had also at the beginning, I know you, you of this particular article I'm thinking about where you, um, you, and I love the title of this balancing hairy audacious thinking with some anxious village vigilance. And, you know, (laughs) you know, that, that, you know, sometimes we do have to really be out there in our thinking in order for those, the, the goals that you mentioned in, you know, that are part of your book. Um, and, and as you put it, like you want, if you want to be creative, you want to advocate for social justice and be innovative some of it requires you to be bold too, though. You have to be bold and and defy what is the the common thinking. Wait, Brian, you you um you can't leave the audience hanging here. Um, it is so hard to stand up against twenty six people, and I know and and the science is really clear. When you are a minority of two versus one the psychological power you wield is so much greater knowing that because you can no longer say, I must not be as smart as everyone else here or else I'd be thinking the same way as the majority thinks. Just having yeah, that yeah. single other ally is so important. Yeah. But, what were, but what were you able to do psychologically to withstand the pressure of, of socially, socially blending in with the other 26? Yeah, well, for me, I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you one little secret is when I was growing up, my grandmother used to say to me, you would argue with a stop sign. So, um, (laughs) so some of it it was kind of natural, but I just couldn't, you know, some of it is that the, you know, the whole idea of social justice was very important in this case. And um, and I, it just wasn't good enough. We just was not gonna let it rest. 
and I wouldn't have been able to rest. And that's what, when you said that earlier, it made me think about um, that sometimes it requires more um, than, than, you know, just going along and, and having certain goals. And like, you do have to defy the, the group and dissent and even just being by yourself. And I just, that I've never been afraid of going it alone and just making the stand. Um, and I just think in leadership, um, we, that's what we need from people. That's part of what we're trying to train people to do is that you're, you're going to ask for things that they're going to, people are going to tell you no about, and you got to be willing to, to hear that. But if you don't ask, I don't feel yeah. Um, you won't get it. I'm, I'm so oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm so yeah. glad you're saying this because I really want people to know is just think about no one ever says in society right now, this is 2022. We're having this conversation. My Lord, we have a surplus of moral courage and now other people can focus on other things of being great pickleball players and focus yeah. on um, becoming, yeah. you know, becoming like more physically fit. Like we always have a deficit in moral courage. It takes, I mean, you're being very humble. It takes a great deal to withstand the social friction and rejection that occurs when yeah. 26 people look at you and they're shaking their head and being like, Brian, can't you just freaking raise your hand and join the rest of us so we can have an early lunch and get some calamari? But what I want, what I want, what I want everyone to listen to is like the reason that I've been spending six years on this, on this science is that it is so difficult and it's so necessary to slow things down. And I do want to say, I want, I want to make sure that I actually um, double down on the notion of it's not just social justice. It's because there's no, there's no political element yeah, to dissent. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. the, where you must dissent is say, you know what, do we need change? Like, is this actually okay the way it is right now? And, and often we get into artificial binaries where we should change, you know, the, uh, how the police operates, how, you know, how, the, how first responders operate, how teachers operate, how, you know, how uh, principals operate. And, so, and in those categories, we have to think about what is working well where we don't have a problem that needs a solution. And sometimes that's where the dissent is. And, and that's actually a big problem right now with current activists is they often think of everything that occurred historically is problematic and we have to blow up the entire machine. And I would say be really careful and be very precise and granular because one of the things, for example, is that you find is that people that grow up in, in you know, low-income inner cities will tell you the only reason that drug dealers don't, and prostitution is not running rampant in their neighborhood is because there are non-random walks and drive-bys by police yeah. officers. And those of us that live in high-income neighborhoods don't deal with those problems, so we're not aware of it. It's really important to be very specific and be willing to disagree, as you said, because you can't sleep at night knowing that yeah. this group, this person, will suffer needlessly because yeah. no one's willing to take a stand. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yes, thank you so much. And I know out of respect for your time and we – you know, we're already over that we could just go on and on with this, Todd. I, I really appreciate this conversation. I want to give you an opportunity. Tell us a little bit about 
any of the books you have that are out there, I, the one I just mentioned to people, I think it is definitely the handbook for the, you know, the the uh, dissenter uh, or even the aspiring dissenter, <laughs> I'll put it that way, um, is The Art of Insubordination, and the subtitle uh, is How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And so um, I know you have others. Please tell us how people can reach you, what websites you have, handles, and social media, what have you. No, thank you. And, and I hope that you are writing a book to tell the story because I'm dying to know what exactly was the theme, <laughs> where it's 26 to 2, and then yes. somehow you flip the script. But that's, that's for, your, for your next book. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, the only, the only thing that I want people to get in people's hands is this book. I, I want to create better, better activists, smarter groups, wiser tribes. And I think uh, right now we are too obsessed with likability. We are too obsessed with fitting in. We are too obsessed with trying to be popular, and we're not thinking about the ideas, and we're not thinking about how the world can be improved pragmatically, not idealistically. Um, everything, you can find uh, everything on my website, toddkashian.com, T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N, and Todd Cashin at Twitter, Todd Cashin at LinkedIn, and you can subscribe for free to my daily newsletter, Provoked. Well, I'll be there, and thank you so much again, Todd. Great, great conversation, and I'll be listening. You've added to me today, and hopefully someone else listening in um, will feel the same. Um, I'll be uh, tracking to look and see about your your, your research and, um, and, and all the work that you're doing. So keep up the good work, um, and, um, and until we get a chance to talk again, go well, stay well. Thank you. Great being here. Love hearing your stories. 